Mac Power Users, episode 363, Workflows with Ivan Hemmins. Hello, everyone. It's David Sparks, along with my pal, Katie Floyd. How are you today, Katie Floyd? I'm great, David. How are you? Good. You feeling better since our last show? I'm feeling a little better since our last show. I'll, I'll make it through here. It's funny, you know, you get those colds. They stick around a while. You don't just get over that in a few days. No, no, this is this has been pretty tough. So um, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting over this one. All right. Well, I'm glad you're feeling better. Um, uh, we've got a great guest today before we introduce him, uh, just a little bit of business following up. The Chicago meetup continues to grow in, um, uh, uh attendees. Every time I look, the list is a little bigger. So, uh, I like that everybody's going to show up and I can't wait to see y'all. Um, you can go sign up for that. We've got a link in the show notes still open, right? Katie. Yeah. As far as I know, it's still open unless you want to start good turning people away. Well, we're still trying to get it figured out for the location. It's it's the first night of March Madness on March 15th, but I have hope things are looking good. So hopefully we'll have an announcement, maybe even as early as next show where it's going to be. But go ahead and sign up. We appreciate that. We look forward to seeing you all. And, and worst case scenario, David has uh, decided that he's going to host us all in his hotel room. Yeah, that'd be great. We'll just, <laughs> that'd be awesome. We'll have everybody like 60 people on the bed, jumping <laughs> up and down. Perfect. They'll never let me back, but that's okay. Once is once is enough, and then um the Facebook group is continuing to grow as well. Um, it's uh, well over a thousand uh, people in it now. Tons of great threads and conversations going on in there. I was just looking in it last night, and lots of Mac Power users connecting with each other and sharing ideas. We're going to have a lot of good use for that as the show goes forward. So I'm real happy to see that happening. I don't have anything else to say about it. But well, you're even posting in Facebook. I was shocked when I saw a post from you. I know. It's, I'm getting over it. I'm getting over it. For the Mac Power users, I will do almost anything, including get active on Facebook. Uh, so go sign up. The The link's in the show notes. So we'd love to have you join us. And gang, um, with that, I don't, we don't have any other business, correct, Katie Floyd? That's it. All right. Well, let's get started. The, the guest this week is a friend of mine, longtime friend, Ivan Hemmins. Ivan, welcome to the show. Hi, it's great to be here. I, Ivan, uh, I've known you for a long time. Ivan works for an unnamed, super large, I guess, international law firm. They're international, right? That's right. And uh, can, can Ivan we just call is, them Evil Corp? No, 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 no. Uh, no. They're, they're we're not, not going to do that. We're mm. not going to do that. It's, they're it also is not a, Google. It's a big law firm, and um, but the reason he's not here is not this. He's not a lawyer. He's actually an IT manager for the, these guys. And I've been talking to Ivan for years. He's got all these great ideas. He runs a network of something like two thousand lawyers, and I, I know you don't run it all yourself. You've got help, uh, but he has tons of knowledge about running networks of computers. Uh, he also run, works on the PC as well as the Mac side. And every time I get into some IT questions and I'm around Ivan and I ask him, he's always got some great answers. And I thought, this guy has some wisdom he can share with our audience. Now, I know there's not many people listening that have 2,000 member networks, but there are people who have a network with their wife and their kids or a small business. And we are giving you a free hour here of consultation with one of the best in the business. So we're going to hear from Ivan about information technology, uh, some of the stuff he does with speaking and presentations and a bunch of other interesting topics. Um, so Ivan, uh, before we get started, we need a little bit of your origin story. You're on Mac Power Users. Why are you a Mac Power User? Well, geez, you know, in, uh, and, and by the way, I'm going to try and live up to that great introduction that you gave me. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> I was like, I want to, I want to meet this guy. Uh, 
So I got my first Mac in 2007. And at that time, I felt like I pretty much knew everything I needed to know about Windows. I'd been using Microsoft Office and I think since I've been using Windows since DOS. DOS 5.0 is when I got my first machine back in 1988. You were probably a word perfect, one of those word perfect freaks, right? Uh, yeah, word perfect and word star. I don't know if anybody remembers word star. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it was good. It was good times. And after installing, because <laughs> I'm a tinkerer, I was like, oh, I wonder what this this swap file is. Let me delete that. Please install Windows. I had to install Windows 98 like 30 times or so. And I, I learned a lot during that journey. And and after I figured out what not to delete, uh, I decided it was time to move on and learn some other stuff. So I was either going to get a, a Linux machine or a Mac machine. And and back around the time OS 10 came out, I had a few friends that were using Macs and they said, you know, you should really think about a Mac. So in 2007, I got the first Intel uh, MacBook Pro, the 15 inch. And I never looked back. <laughs> Funny war story I am. Um, for Christmas this year, my mother-in-law gives occasional presentations. And my sister-in-law bought her a projector because she wants to take her Mac and give presentations. And she was having trouble getting it working. So I said, bring it over. So she brings it over. And I turn it on. And I turned it on. And the first thing it did was make the Windows 95 startup chime. <laughs> <laughs> Very first thing it does. It's a projector I'm giving you. This is not a computer. It's a projector. <laughs> and I immediately turned it off and I said, get the receipt. We're returning this. I will help you find one that works. <laughs> that, I honestly have no idea what else that projector could do because that's as much as I, time as I spent with it. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. And I guess I guess technically I, I did look back because I, I work at a law firm for a living. And at the law firm, we use Microsoft Office. We use Windows. And we're... We've got all kinds of Microsofty kind of enterprise level stuff, but at home, I, I use my Mac. So I'm a at PC. I'm a PC at work and a Mac at home. But you guys also use iOS at, at the um, at the big firm too, right? We do. Yeah. When the iPhone came out ten years ago, or just about ten years ago, uh, they started infiltrating our our network. At that time, we were a BlackBerry shop. Almost everybody that had any kind of mobile device had a BlackBerry. There were a few people that had Windows CE devices, the Win Windows Compact Edition devices and some handspring trios and all, all kinds of uh, different devices, but it was almost entirely BlackBerry. And when we saw that first iPhone, they started showing up at the office. Hey, can you connect this for me? And pretty soon we had a few hundred iPhones on the on the network and we needed to find a way to manage those devices. So yeah, so today we've got well over a thousand iOS devices and just a couple hundred Blackberries still lurking around. Wow, people are still using Blackberries. You know, there. if you do a lot of email, in my opinion, even today, I don't think there's anything better for handling large amounts of email than a Blackberry. Wow. I've been reporting straight from 2007. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you guys have over a thousand iOS devices. You do have some Macs in your network too, right? We do. Yeah, we're we're almost entirely Windows, although we do have a small fleet of about somewhere under 50, more than 20, somewhere in there that that use their Macs for work with uh, specific clients who shall remain unnamed. But um, yeah, they do need to use their Macs from time to time and they connect to our, our network in a slightly different way. But uh, right. yeah. And, and gang, this is why when I go in court and give a presentation to a jury, I always look better. Because all these lawyers are still using ancient versions of Windows with old versions of PowerPoint and their presentations look like crud. So <laughs> thank you. 
legal awesome. profession for refusing to move forward. I want to know from from the IT standpoint, because we always, when we go to ABA Tech Show and things like this, we blame the IT department people for being uncaring and ununderstanding, and they just don't get Macs, and they want to blanket prohibit Macs from from the networks. How, from from an IT perspective, how has it been managing Macs on the network, and what are some of the challenges with that? Well, uh, on the Windows side, there are lots of hooks that are in place that allow a a network administrator or a systems engineer to control and manage the settings that are on your devices. So on a Windows machine, I can force when it's going to get updates, where it get those where it gets those updates from. I can control the permissions that the user has. There's a lot of stuff that I can sort of do at scale with a large number of machines. And on the Mac, uh, those hooks are still there, but we're not necessarily. And, and I say we. I mean, most organizations that are primarily Windows shops aren't positioned to leverage those hooks. In some cases. Uh, you'll have to install software on the Mac that uh, translates the Windows commands into commands the Mac can understand and obey. So uh, for for our situation, we actually are doing things a little bit more uh, organic than that. As the machines come in, they, they come in periodically. We go through a checklist of things to apply to each Mac, and then we send it back out into the field, and we just check in with those devices periodically to ensure that they're still uh, following the firm policy. And when you say check in, how are you doing that? Uh, uh, the old the old sneaker net. It's right now. That's the simplest way to do it without building a framework to manage these. Although I do believe that we'll be using something like uh, Jamf J A M F uh, in the future to uh, to better manage these devices without having to go touch each one individually. Yeah, the tools are out there now. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff for for. I mean, obviously iOS has a ton of management stuff, but but Mac as well. Hmm. Yeah, and and I should say I'm speaking primarily about the Mac uh, when uh, when I'm talking about having to manually touch these things. The iOS stuff is kind of figured out already. A lot of companies use a mobile device management system, something like a Mobile Iron or a Good Technology or AirWatch. There are a whole bunch that are out there, and uh, we happen to use Mobile Iron. And what it allows us to do is access the hooks that that uh, Apple has put in place to manage these devices. So when a device registers to our network, we can say. We know that you're an iPhone, but when you're connected to our network, we need to have an unlock code so that if someone finds us on the street, they can't just swipe and start perusing all of our proprietary data. So when it joins our network, the iPhone says, okay, I need to have a lock code. Uh, the other thing it says is if I, if I get lost, I give the company permission to push a button and erase the device. Now, we don't do that, but if people call in and say, hey, uh, my, my iPhone was stolen last week, can you erase it for me? We have the ability to do that as part of one of the management tools. So the iOS side, I feel like is pretty much figured out for companies uh, in management. The Mac side requires a little bit more of a framework in order to, uh, to bring that kind of functionality at, at scale to a bunch of devices. Now in the IT uh, business, is there a preference between touch ID and unlock codes? I mean, do you guys let people <laughs> use touch ID? Uh, yeah, yeah. Touch ID is great. And I'd say that the, the users, the people who actually have, have these phones and want to get into them, uh, once Touch ID was uh, was released, there was this great disturbance in the force. All of these, these, it's almost like the end of a a popular space film where people are dancing around and celebrating uh, because uh, it's <laughs> it's secure from our standpoint. Uh, the device, all of that sort of authentication happens on the device. They press a button, the phone says, "Yep, you're good," and it lets you right in. So Touch ID was a a huge blessing, and uh, all of our iOS folks uh, kind of rejoiced its introduction. 
So if I'm using an iOS device on a corporate network, whether it's BYOD and I brought my own device in or whether it's a device that you've provisioned and, and handed to me, I think there's a lot of fear out there in terms of what can my employer see, what can my employer do. Can you talk a little big picture generally about how mobile device management works? And I understand that everyone's different and the, the settings can be configured differently. Yes, that is a great question. And actually, that's one of the things that people were concerned about when we first introduced it in our environment. And I'd say that now today, the mobile device management companies, the people that provide these systems to manage device, they do a much better job of explaining what can and can't be done on the device. So one of the concerns people have is, well, if you have my device hooked up into your system, can you see like when I send a text message to my mom, can you see the contents of that text message? And the answer is no. Mobile device management systems don't give you any ability to peer inside of any of the apps that are on the device. You can't see uh, where someone's going to uh, in their Safari browser. You can't see if uh, if they've got Google Drive. You can't look at all of their Google Drive files. All you can see are things that are on your network. So let me flip that around. If I work at Company X and I register my phone with company X, and I access my firm mail on my phone, the company can see my mail because it lives on the company's servers. They're not able to see it because it's in my phone. They can see it because I'm accessing their servers to get the stuff on my phone in the first place. And that'd be true no matter what device you're using. Exactly right. Exactly right. So uh, to say it again one more time, the, uh, any company that's using any mobile device management system cannot look inside to see uh, any data from any of those apps, with the exception of data that already lives on the servers they own in the first place. What they can see, though, is they can see, uh, depending on how they set it up, they can see where in the world that device is. So if someone were to call in and say, hey, um, you know, I'm not going to be able to make it in the office. I'm homesick. And they're in Hawaii. Right. They could say like, oh, look, you're at the movie theater in Hawaii. Now, why would you be at the movie theater if you're in Hawaii? But they could see that potentially. We don't have our system set up that way. But it's possible to set it up like that. And the other thing they could see is a list of applications. So they can see if you have, you know, perhaps a, some kind of a application that you might want, not want the company to know you have listed. But th the reason that they're able to see those applications is because they can block uh, a potentially malicious app. So if a, if a malicious app were to surface in the world, our company could say, well, we're going to block that app wallpaper one, two, three, because it's, it's trying to infiltrate your device. Makes sense. Um, now you said, what was the company you're using for device management for the legions of devices you have? Ah, uh, we're using mobile iron. Okay. Now, is that a company that makes sense? Um, if you're managing thousands of devices, is that, is that a place, or even if you're managing dozens of devices, if we've got someone listening to the show, who's maybe a small business owner who wants to start a BYOD policy or something like that, is that, is that a good place to start? Or is maybe there a more intermediate level? Uh, so if for anyone who's interested in starting, let me step back and uh, just one second before I answer that. And I'll say that I have a family of four. And in the beginning, I was considering just getting a little Mac mini, putting the server software on there and and setting up my own just for my family of four. You can do that, uh, assuming that the Mac mini will continue to exist as a thing. Uh, th this mobile device management framework is provided by Apple. So they have their own MDM software. So if you already have a Mac uh, that's on all the time, you can just put the server software and you're ready to go. But if you're if you're looking about, you know, managing even like a dozen devices or so, there are a whole uh, slew of different options available. 
Uh, I'd recommend if if you're just trying to get your feet wet, I would dabble with something like Busha, which I think has a free forever at three devices. You can just get in there and and see what it's all about. But um, the the framework is provided by Apple. It's pretty it's pretty standard. I say almost any of these mobile device management systems provide about eighty percent of the same functionality because they're all speaking to the same APIs that Apple provides. And so, if you had a small company or a family. You know, what are the advantages of going with something like Bushel to to try and figure this stuff out? Uh, so, number one, you can ensure that all of the devices are protected at the same level. So you can say, I want to ensure there's a passcode on all of these devices. I want to ensure that within so many minutes, the screens lock. Uh, I want to ensure that they have access to these applications that I'm going to make available to them. So you can push apps to the devices. You can say, I don't want them to worry about how to set up their email account, regardless of who the service provider is. You can program the settings for email ahead of time. So by virtue of them logging in with the username and password you give them, the email settings just land on the device automatically. You can uh, you can do things like they, they forget the code to get into their phone. You can tell the phone, unlock and just let them in and they can set a new code. David, you may know the answer to this because I, I know you're using a lot of family sharing features. Apple has has some, but not necessarily great parental control features in iOS by default. Do you get any of these management features with family sharing? Not really. I, I think if you want to do like, like you know, kind of nanny control stuff, and that's what's going to be my next question too, is it, does it give you any of that? <laughs> you know, that's that's the funny thing. When, uh, when I was considering rolling my own little Mac mini and turning it into an MDM server. The reason that I was interested in doing that is because I have a a small son who's now a little bit older, but uh, Apple Music, which which we have, uh, you know, music, they don't quite filter the content as great, you know, as well as they do with movies. And I think this is true regardless of who the service provider is, whether using Spotify or or whatnot. If you go look at an NC-17 movie, it's easy to to tell that the the movies are rated properly. Music, sometimes words slip in when you're not listening closely. I wanted to prevent Apple Music from being visible on my son's iPhone. And when I talked to Apple, this was a few years ago, they said, uh, you may want to look at using mobile device management to do that. So I could block particular apps. I can say Apple Music is not available on this device because it belongs to this particular set of rules. I think if you're going to, if you really have like an issue with children in the home, I would encourage you to look at some of the options built just for that. Like Kirby is one that I like C U R B I where it's got a very interesting way. Cause it, it, it works regardless of what network they're on. And you know, it just does a pretty good job of it. But the, um, I'd also be interested to hear from people in the audience that are, are concerned about it and actively dealing with it. You know, my, my kids, one of my kids is a legal adult and the other one is pretty close. <laughs> so, you know, at some point it becomes a trust thing. But the uh, but if they were younger, I think I would probably have a Kirby subscription. So there is ways, though, to manage the iOS device. I think that is much easier than managing the Mac devices in a way <laughs> than it than it has been. And, and I think your industry is one of the reasons, because exactly what you described happened. People started bringing iPhones into corporate environments and people wanted to use them, right? And you can't really just say, no, we're not going to let you use your iPhones. I bet you thought about it, though, or some people did in your in your team. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it, we got to a point where where we realized, you know, the the tide is changing and we need to do something. So we the first thing we did is we we got a, a mobile team together and we went through the list of existing policies and we decided the sorts of things that people 
uh, should and shouldn't do with respect to the firm's uh, overall position in the in the uh, in the industry. And once that went up and down the chain, where everyone who had a decision, uh, or at least had the power to decide, uh, figured out what we were supposed to do, we published that policy, and then we began our shift to uh, to move to a mobile device management situation. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by the Ministry of Supply. Get 15% off your first purchase by going to ministryofsupply.com slash macpowerusers. I have to admit I always get a little smile on my face when Ministry of Supply comes in to sponsor the Mac Power Users because I'm such a fan of their products. Ministry of Supply makes really nice dress clothing. I spent over 20 years putting on dress clothes every day to go to the office. And I got to tell you, the clothes I bought, even though they were expensive, were super uncomfortable. They're restrictive and unbreathable. And by the end of the day, they're wrinkled too. This is the problem that Ministry of Supply solves. They make superior dress clothing for the modern day workplace. Ministry of Supply was launched by some MIT engineers and their clothing combines human-centric research, performance technology, and tailored design to create where-to-work clothes for men and women like dress shirts, blouses, and pants. Not only do their garments look nice, they work with your body to provide maximum comfort, combined with features like temperature control, wrinkle resistance, and extreme stretch to give you a sharp, professional look all day long. For example, their Future Forward dress shirt has NASA-invented fibers that regulate body temperature based on your surroundings. When they first sponsored the Mac Power users, they gave me one of their shirts, and I fell in love immediately. In fact, I threw out all my other dress clothes, and I bought stuff from Ministry of Supply. So now if you see me going to a meeting looking fancy, I'm sporting Ministry of Supply. One of my favorite combinations during the winter is their slacks, dress shirt, and sweater. The sweater is really breathable, but looks super sharp on me. I can say that, right? It looks good on me? Anyway, Ministry of Supply also now makes socks. Their smarter dress socks are made of coffee fiber that wicks sweat and absorbs odor. They also provide extreme cushion with more padding than gym socks. Best of all, they offer free shipping and free returns with a 100-day, no-questions-asked return policy. So if you're thinking about it, go ahead and buy a couple. If you don't like them, you can send them back. Although I doubt you will. I love mine and I bet you will too. In addition to buying online, they have nine retail stores and locations like San Francisco, Atlanta, and Chicago. And if you go in store and buy and you mention this show, you'll get 15% off. Anyway, to upgrade your wardrobe, head over to ministryofsupply.com slash macpowerusers and you'll get 15% off your purchase. Thank you, Ministry of Supply, for your great clothes and support of the Mac Power users. So, Ivan, we've talked a lot about mobile device management. Let's talk a little bit about some of the other things that you do as, as part of your job. Um, I know you do a lot of a lot of education and training for your employees because hopefully if you can do it on the front end, maybe you don't spend so much time on support on the back end. That's right. That's right. Actually, yeah, I've been with my, my company now for about 18 years, and I got my foot in the door as a temp uh, doing uh, just typing. I had a strong background in Microsoft Word. And back about 18 years ago, a lot of companies, a lot of law firms were shifting away from WordPerfect and moving toward Microsoft Office. Within a few months, I ended up on our help desk where I was answering questions and uh, trying to troubleshoot for people. And then after that, I spent about 10 years doing technology training as one of their trainers. And they flew me all over the world, helping people learn how to take better advantage of Microsoft Word, Microsoft Outlook, uh, use some of the hidden features in exchange, that sort of thing. And uh, 
in about 2007, I got promoted to take over the training and education role at the firm. And that's sort of what I'm doing nowadays. I have a, a small but mighty team of technology trainers. They do instructor-led classes every month on a variety of topics, uh, almost all internal because we are, our customers are the people that work for our company. And uh, in addition to that, we create screencasts. We explain uh, how things work. We put out uh, periodic email communications telling them about updates that are coming out, uh, making them aware of features they may have forgotten about. And uh, in addition to that, we do all of the new hire training. So when a new person joins, we help them learn kind of all of the different things that are available for them to use uh, with respect to technology when they're trying to get their work done. Do you have a a formal program that you've put together for like onboarding a new employee? And is that maybe a different curriculum if you're um, a secretary versus a professional uh, versus a file clerk or, or things like that? We do. We actually do. Uh, there, there's quite a bit of overlap because a lot of the technology is the same, but the thrust of what we explain is different. So, a, uh, for example, a, uh, a secretary may learn how to uh, enter particular uh, data into different systems like time entry and so forth for the lawyer, whereas the lawyer may spend more time learning how to use their, their laptop and their mobile devices because they may travel more often. I think that's a great idea, especially if you can get some of those basic things um, answered up front. So obviously you don't want to do this one-on-one training. Um, and some of it you may want to do one-on-one, but to the extent that you can, my guess is you try to to bank this and, and screencast this so that you're not having to repeat this with every new hire that you you bring on in your, your organization. So what kind of format do you use? And then what kind of tools do you use to create these programs? So you'd be surprised. We actually still do a hefty amount of in-person or at least live training. We use WebEx primarily, although we do have access to other screen sharing technologies like Skype for Business to do screen sharing with a a telephone conference component where we show people live and answer the questions as they ask. Uh, Sometimes we record those and we release those later internally, recorded webinars kind of within the firm. Uh, we, We use... Adobe Captivate primarily for creating screencasts that allows us to take snapshots of the screen. It's almost like using PowerPoint. So if you've ever used PowerPoint and you've ever taken a screenshot and you've said slide one is screenshot of the desktop and slide two is a screenshot of the desktop with the a, a particular menu visible, Captivate lets you do that, but it's it's automated so that when it's running, it just waits for you to push a button. So you just go through the steps of doing whatever you're doing. And at every step you pause, you press a button, it captures the screen. And then afterwards you go through and uh, record your narration or before you go through and you record whatever voiceover you want. It's it's kind of cool. Is that a PC tool? I haven't heard of Captivate, I don't think. So uh, Captivate is a product from Adobe. And uh, like Adobe does, they make a lot of their products available for both uh, Windows and Mac. So it's available for both PC and for uh, and for Mac. And I've used it on both. And it works about the same in either in either environment. But if if you're on the Mac and you're going to be doing any kind of screencasting, uh, ScreenFlow should definitely be in your uh, in your bag of tricks. How much of your stuff have you reduced to screencasts at this point? Uh, if I were to break it down by percentages, I'd probably say we're we're approaching the twenty percent mark. And uh, what what's happening is that the newer products that are coming out, we're building screencasts for those more rapidly, and for the more legacy. The more legacy apps, we're, we're taking our time with those. And the reason for that is our approach is, is one where we try and get the most bang for our buck out of a recording. What we found is it takes about an hour to generate a minute's worth of content. 
when you're talking about doing screencasts. I don't know, uh, Dave, uh, that, what your that's own... About a, that's a fair estimate. Is that a fair estimate? Especially on shorter ones. I mean, I just did one for uh, a company that was like five minutes and I had a day in it, you know, but... but but when you do longer ones, once you get rolling, because you have to prepare the assets and there's a whole bunch of stuff to do. Uh, longer ones, it's less than an hour, but it's not insignificant. Um, yeah. So I'll just walk you briefly through my workflow and then and then uh, you guys can kind of prompt me on which way to go. But in general, we, we tend to write a, a short script of what we'd like to say so that we don't ramble. I tend to get rambly if you let me if you let me get going. Uh, then we'll perform the audio, meaning we'll go through and we'll read it with uh, exaggerated performance capabilities, right? We'll, we'll use our voices so that they're dynamic and not boring. And then we'll go back and we'll clip out any places where we've stu- stuttered and uh, any places where we've sort of messed up because, you know, we don't make mistakes in post-production. And then afterwards, we'll go through and we'll capture all of the screens that go along with what we're talking about. And then finally, we'll put it together, publish it, and then have someone review it and come back to us with any changes that we need to make. So that whole process can take... I don't know, about an hour or so per minute. And and the reason we don't go back and deal with the older applications is because we'd like for that production, that little screencast to live as long as it can. And if we spend, you know, 15 hours building something and then a new release of the app comes out, we've sort of lost that time. So, uh, you know, when something is new, that's the best time for us to to make the screencast because then we know it's got the best chance to survive for months or maybe even years. One of the reasons I wanted you on the show, because you've got such a big audience of people, at least from a corporate standpoint. So you've got a a good deal of feedback on this stuff. How is it working with you, the various methods of teaching your employees, the screencasts versus the webinars versus the in-person stuff? I mean, have you got any feel about what works and what doesn't? So I'll tell you, if you have a choice, or I should say from the audience perspective, we we always try in my team to think about the audience that's consuming our content. So from their perspective, the best possible thing they could get would be a one-on-one session where they can ask any question that they want and steer the conversation. So in person, uh, live, either a one-on-one or small group is the best choice. If you can't do that, then in my opinion, the next thing would be web conference, live, with a small group, 12 is like the sweet spot. Anything smaller than 12 feels still like a, a, a private or individual discussion. Uh, beyond that, the next thing would be, uh, in my opinion, not, not a recording of the webinar, which you might think that would be the next thing. But for me, a screencast that's really targeted because uh, a webinar that conveys information in about an hour, you could probably sum that up in about 10 minutes, 15 minutes with a, a well-done screencast. Yeah, I mean, back when I was in my prior firm, we had a couple things we did on the computers that uh, would happen maybe once every two or three months. It involved some corporate filings and stuff. And you went to a particular website, you had to fill it out in a particular way. And I would find that every three months, somebody would come up to me and ask me again how to do it. And, <laughs> and that desk would change sometimes. Some A different person would be there. But the problem was they weren't doing it every day. So they never felt comfortable enough to do it uh, every time they had to do it, it felt like doing it for the first time for them. And so I screencasted it finally. I just said, okay, I made a screencast about how to do the whole thing. I put it on the network. And every time that person walked in the door, I said, go watch that video. And if you don't understand, come back and talk to me. And that was golden. And so it's like, I think it depends on the type of problem you're solving. So somebody listening to this that has a small team, um, they certainly can do one. They can afford and probably have the ability to do one-on-one or small group training 
But I think if you have specific problems where it's a repeated problem that they don't do very often, a screencast can be very good for that too. Exactly. And we, we do a fair amount of writing as well. So quite often, and, and this is what we have more of, we have a, a big library of written materials with uh, very few screenshots. Screenshots kind of where they're needed, but if it's uh, pretty straightforward, we don't include them because it just takes less time to type the words out. And uh, people can search for that and find pretty much everything they need. Where where we can, we supplement that with the screencast material. Yeah, but the screencast, is, is don't you think it's a better? or a- Oh, much, much, much better. Yeah, it's much more accessible. And and I guess I, I could go back and say that that one hour per minute of content is something that's sort of professionally done and is very targeted. Anyone can push record and start rambling off instructions over five or 10 minutes. But we're trying to put something together that people will get in, get what they need and get out. So have you tried any of ScreenFlow's competitors or are you just 100 percent in with ScreenFlow? Um, if I'm on if I'm on my Mac and and I sh- I should say that I'm one of the the few Macs that we have at my firm. I have a 27 inch iMac that I use for uh, doing some video editing for some security training that we do, as well as the ScreenFlow screencast stuff. Uh, I prefer I prefer to do the editing stuff on the Mac, and I've used some of the other competitors out there. I've used Snagit, I've used uh, Camtasia, I've used. Uh, as I mentioned, Adobe uh, Captivate and a few others. There, there are a few other tools out there that I haven't gotten my hands on yet. But so far, everything that I've needed to do, I've been able to do with ScreenFlow. Yeah, every time a new one comes out, I try it out and I always end up back with ScreenFlow as well. It's it's just a great app for that. Having done a few screencasts under your belt now, what what are the biggest mistakes you make? You know, what give some people some advice here. Ah, the biggest mistake that <laughs> it, it's really going back to basics, almost to, to like a presentation thing. The biggest mistake that I make is I, I rush off and start screencasting before I know exactly what it is I'm trying to uh, tell my audience to do. So going back to basics, I would I would say uh, ensure that you know exactly what you want your message to be first before you start screencasting. Uh, the, the next thing is also going to sound basic, but... Uh, I find for me it helps, and that's script. It doesn't have to be uh, word for word exactly. It could just be a simple list of bullet points to give you a framework. But uh, I find if I don't have a framework, I'll tend to ramble on and on and on and on. And on? Yes. (laughs) I don't know. I may have said this before, but I I tend to ramble. Uh, And then I guess the the last thing to do would be to, uh, to actually... Uh, what would I do? I guess I would prepare my environment. So if I'm taking screenshots, so most of the time I'm doing screencasts about technology. So I'm doing some sort of a uh, simulated demonstration within an app. So I, I like to arrange all of my windows and things ahead of time. So I don't have a bunch of clutter distracting people from, from what they're supposed to be learning about. And then I guess the last thing would be when I publish it, let someone else take a look at it and be prepared to make changes based on feedback they give you. There's some things you can do, like things that can be distracting, like, you know, set your resolution, set your desktop background, remove the clock and all unnecessary things out of your your menu bar. I mean, David, you could probably go on. I'm I'm sure you have a laundry list of items you do before you screencast. But, you know, I find I I screencast probably a couple of times a year, so not enough to to make it a, a regular checklist. And even if I know what I'm going to do. I just find that I end up going back so many times because it's not something I regularly do. Going, oh, I got to take the clock out of the menu bar. Oh, got to do this. Oh, I got to change that. <laughs> you know, I just want to do yeah. something quick. But yeah, I um, I also would recommend taking several takes because the screen 
workflow and, and most of these apps make it super easy to perform edits later and they come off. You'll never know. I mean, if you saw the number of edit points and even a small screencast that I produce, you'd be shocked. You'd say, man, this guy's super incompetent. Look at all these edit points. <laughs> what what I used to do is I used to stop and then uh, find my place and then start the recording again. And now what I do is I just, if I stumble, I pause two seconds without pressing any buttons and I just continue recording. And then afterwards I go back and I snip out the the place where I messed up. I'm, I'm imagining your, your workflow is similar. Yeah, that's the only way to do it, really. Um, um just real quick, um, I've never, I, I've done a lot of screencasts. I've never done it for distribution in a company. What do you do in terms of like the video production size? I mean, how big do you make the video and how do you distribute it? That's a great question. So uh, as Katie was talking about, their screen resolution is something to think about. We have a mix, right? Uh, almost everyone in our environment has a 19, well, actually, yeah, almost everyone has a 19 inch monitor and quite a few people have 24 inch monitors, which have a screen resolution. But if they're going to be watching this on their firm laptop, the laptop's resolution is different. So we we try and standardize close to, but not quite uh, 1024 by 768 if we can get away with it. Uh, we're finding that more apps are starting to go to a higher resolution. So we, we try and aim for a small common size on the screen. And uh, the great thing about Captivate is that it's like PowerPoint in that uh, something like ScreenFlow records in full motion video. So every second is like 24 or 30 uh, images. With Captivate, when you press the button, it takes a shot. So it's like one slide with a bunch of audio, and that's much more portable, much uh, smaller of a file size than, uh, than the full motion. So that's, that's one of the reasons that we use uh, Captivate, because the economy of the file size makes it easier for us to host and, and give it to 2,000 people. Although I would say that like a screen flow video, generally a screen casted video is much smaller than a live action video because there is some magic going on behind the scenes to, to minimize the file size. But exactly. It's not like a few screenshots that are animated like you get with Captivate. Um, and then just for distribution, how do people get access to them? You, you've got you've got customers, in essence, all over the world. Right. So internally, we have what's what we call a uh, I should say what the industry calls a learning management system. It's almost like a, um, it's like a like a digital university. We call it, well, actually, I was going to tell you what we call it, but it's got our firm name in it. So instead, I'll say we call it our firm university. And uh, what will happen is a person can search on our intranet and they'll find if they're looking for how do I do calendar appointments in, in Outlook. And one of the search results will be the video. And when they click it, it'll start playing right in the browser. So this university uh, program allows them to watch the video. It records how far they watched in the video. And then when they're finished, they can get credit for watching it. So at the end of the year, they can look back and say, how many different training videos did I watch throughout the year? And they could uh, mark that down on their, you know, their self-report saying how, how awesome they did this year. So besides the screencasts and the web tutorials and those things, do you offer people any written instructions or tutorials? And do you use any specialized software for creating documentation? Uh, that's a great question, too. Uh, I write almost exclusively in Markdown when I can. And uh, on, my, on my Mac, I'm using Byword and I'm using Marked from our good friend, Drink. And um, on, on the Windows machine, I use a, a small app called WriteMonkey. Uh, Write Monkey, which is like a, a portable, it, you don't even have to install it. You just double click it and it runs. But um, 
if if you're not me and you're doing this kind of work, and I have a few people at, at my job who are not me and they're doing this kind of work, uh, we use a content management system. So it's very much like a WordPress. Uh, it's not WordPress. What we're using is something called Sitecore, and it gives you kind of a WYSIWYG editor. So you push a button, it writes the HTML before you uh, for you behind the scenes. If you want, you can click a button to reveal the HTML, and most people don't choose to do that. And then when you publish it, it automatically handles the the URL within the within the structure of the page, and it includes it for full text searching. So we don't really have to do a lot of HTML slinging on our own. That uh, the system kind of manages it for us. You know, back when I used a PC, I used WriteMonkey too. It was years ago, but I'm glad to hear it's still around. <laughs> it's great. It's just a basic text editor that doesn't stink on Windows. Right. And it lets you copy and transform the text either into HTML or rich text with just a couple of keystrokes. It's uh, it's great. For years, I used Clarify, which was available for Mac, and it, it still is. It's still in the Mac App Store. It looks like it was last updated in May of 2015, although their site is still up and seems to be working. So I don't know if it's just kind of feature complete and doesn't need any more updates or if uh, nothing's going on with it anymore. But uh that was a that was a great tool that I would recommend kind of for individuals or or solos or um, looking to create good documentation. I don't know what the current status of it is, though, so you might want to check into that. I was just speaking with someone today who tells me they use Jing. It was a, an educator who works at a at a uh, at, at a law uh, law school. And I was like, you use Jing? I haven't used Jing in a long time, but he's, he swears by it. He says it's great. So Jing is uh, still out there. I want to take a moment and thank our longtime sponsor, Smile, and take this opportunity to talk to you about Text Expander for Teams. Now, you know and love Text Expander. I've been talking about Text Expander for years because it is the ultimate productivity tool on my Mac. I simply could not live without it. Now, think about Text Expander and all of the time that it saves you, and imagine taking that and multiplying it throughout your entire team. Text Expander for Teams is a productivity multiplier. It is a shared knowledge base for your teams in which your entire team can communicate quickly and accurately. So you know that you can use Text Expander for quick snippets of text or for boilerplates or for common replies. Well, imagine if your team could have that power. Imagine all of the common responses that you use within your business throughout of a day and worded by your team's best writers. Maybe it's a form letter. Maybe it's an invitation. Maybe it's the answer to a support ticket. Now imagine your best writers on your team, your combined knowledge base, helping to put those together, and now they're all immediately accessible and searchable through simple abbreviations and keyboard shortcuts at everybody's fingertips. And we're going to go one step further. As a Mac Power user, you know about the support for Text Expander for Mac. You've loved using it on your Mac and iOS for years, but maybe you've kind of lamented the fact that you haven't been able to use Text Expander on Windows until now, because Text Expander is now available on Mac, iOS, and Windows. I had the opportunity to demo a number of productivity software and services to a group of attorneys last week as part of a 30 tips in 60 minutes type session, and I demoed Text Expander. In the evaluation, we asked the group to let us know what they were most interested in learning more about. Do you know what showed up on almost everybody's comment card? It was Text Expander. 
Text Expander is in use by businesses everywhere. In fact, if you head over to their website over at textexpander.com, you can see a series of blog posts and stories about other companies and organizations and individuals who are using Text Expander at work and amongst their teams. To learn more, you can head over to textexpander.com slash blog to read more about these stories on their blog. And if you want to know more in general about Text Expander, head over to textexpander.com slash MPU, and that will let them know that Mac Power users sent you. So head on over to textexpander.com slash MPU to start your free trial and learn more about how companies like WordPress and Desk multiply their productivity using Text Expander. Ivan, you've got a lot of oars in the water. How are you managing all this stuff? Uh, GTD. I think that's sort of the de facto answer for a lot of people uh, nowadays. Not not everybody. Not everybody. Well, I wish it were. <laughs> uh, yeah, for, for me, uh, GTD. And I discovered GTD... In 2007, I was uh, knee-deep in lots and lots and lots of podcasts, and one of the ones I I followed was MacBreak Weekly, and through that, I heard about GTD from Merlin Mann, and he swore by it up and down. He used to have the site 43 folders. It's like, wow, that sounds really good, and then, of course, I did nothing with it, Uh, and then uh, a new higher-up, higher-level manager came to work at my firm, and he mentioned it to me. And then two other people mentioned it to me within the same week. And I said, okay, this is clearly a sign. I'm supposed to read this book, but I didn't want to commit. So I went to our our library and they had a way for you to check out the book online and read it in your browser. So I read the first 70 pages of the book uh, online in my browser. And I realized at about page 70, I need to go buy this book. So I go to my bookstore <laughs> and I asked the person who was working, like, do you have this GTD book, Getting Things Done? The Art of Stress-Free Productivity. And the guy was like, I can't find it. He looked it up. It's supposed to be over here somewhere. Uh, a customer was standing nearby. And that customer found the book for me and spent the next 20 minutes telling me how, just by reading that book, it made a tremendous difference in his life. And he was orders of magnitude more effective than everyone he knew. And that's the story <laughs> of how you met David Sparks. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, I, I was resistant to it, too. I felt like it was a cult when I first heard about it. I'm like, gosh, why is everybody just like, Stop talking about this GTD stuff. And then I finally got on board and I loved it. Yeah. And I guess I was ready because at that point in time, I felt like so many projects were coming at me. I was starting to drop the ball. I, I was not used to uh, not keeping my word to people. If I said, oh, yeah, I'll do that for you. I, I was used to doing that. And I was finding that more and more often I wasn't able to keep up with the commitments I made. So I was I was primed to receive the message at that time. And Within a few months of implementing it, and I implemented on paper and pencil, that that was what I did. I had 43 physical file folders. I All said, right. I'm going to do this low tech. <laughs> yeah. And uh, <laughs> yeah. With, within a few months, I got a promotion and took over the department that I'm now running. Do you think it had something to do with it? I'm absolutely certain that it had something to do with it. I went from being kind of inefficient and scattered to being laser focused and effective. And I think it... Um, even my nonverbal communication, I just was more calm and, and somebody saw something in that and decided to, uh, to give me a shot in management. Well, that's great. And, and just, you know, a shameless plug, Ivan and I are going to be giving a session on GTD at the ABA tech show. So if you're a lawyer and you're going to Chicago in March, uh, you'll hear us talk a lot about GTD, but, but how are you implementing GTD, uh, now? Are you still using the 43 folders? Uh, you know, uh, I, I actually have a hybrid now. So all of my, uh, I go to a lot of meetings. I, I probably go to, I don't know, between 15 and 25 meetings a week, depending on uh, the week in question. My heart just broke. My heart just I know. Broke. <laughs> it's great. 
It's great. So what I do is I have a little uh, five by seven notepad, almost like a miniature legal pad with the yellow paper and everything. And I take that with me to every meeting I go to. I take notes. And when there are actions for me, I draw a little box, a little uh, analog checkbox. I try and write a sentence that tells me what it is I have to do. And then uh, I collect those. And then at the end, of, or when I get back to my desk, if I have a break between meetings, I'll take those and I'll put them into OmniFocus, into the OmniFocus inbox. And then I'll come back and process them later. So so it starts off on paper. And if I don't get to do them before, uh, before too much time goes by, then it becomes an electronic item in the OmniFocus inbox. And later on, it's categorized to where it needs to be. Do you keep those meeting notes or do you trash them? Uh, well, actually, it depends. Uh, in some cases, what I'll do is I'll take a uh, a photo of the of the meeting notes so I can have kind of the 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 doodles that I might have made on the notes. But in other cases, I just toss them. Okay, I used to do something like that with a um little field guide, you know, thing I would carry in my pocket. Yes, yes, the old pocket or, or those no, not not the sketch field notes. notes. What are those? Field notes. notes. That's right. Yeah. But then then drafts got so good that I just now pull out drafts and add stuff. How are you, Katie? How do you add stuff as you're going through your day? Well, that's one thing about OmniFocus is it makes it very, very easy to get things in there. Um, probably the, the simplest way that I add things throughout my day is I pull out my iPhone and I, I just add them to the reminders list in iOS because I have that connected on the back end. Uh, to OmniFocus, which then pulls that into my OmniFocus uh, inbox. And I'll tell you where I fall down. I was just going to ask Ivan about this. I have gotten lax in processing my inbox and I need to make my, I have to make a concerted effort to make myself go in and process my inbox every day because I found that it is easy to let my inbox just sit there and uh, like right now I've got 10 items in my inbox. I've got to figure out that I've got things to do with um, that don't, don't need to be in that inbox. Um, and, and processing to get that inbox down to zero so I know what to do with those things. Like I've got notes, David, for one of our upcoming podcasts for things that I need to add to, to show notes. Those, those don't need to be in my inbox. Those need to go somewhere else. Um, but that was just the easiest place to, to put them. So that's where I'm falling down a little bit on my, my GTD practice right now. Are you using any other apps, Ivan, on uh, your GTD stuff? Uh, for the GTD stuff, so I've got I've got the uh, the few that you have mentioned. So I've got the reminders hooked in. I've got drafts hooked in. I've got uh, my calendar as part of my GTD system because that that's where I put things that absolutely have to get done at a particular day and time. What are you and using for your calendar? On iOS, I'm using Fantastical two, and on uh, well, actually on my Mac, I'm not really using my Mac for for worky work scheduling things. I've sort of standardized on my company calendar for any work-related things. So that's in, in Microsoft Exchange, and that syncs to the built-in calendar app on my phone. But the great thing about Fantastical on iOS is that it just looks at what's on your phone already, so there's no there's no additional settings or syncing or anything that has to happen. It just works right with the, uh, the calendar. I think that was one of the like, really smart things Apple did was making the calendar store or the calendar database available to third-party apps as if they were native. And that gives us all the ability to try these different calendar apps and find the one that works with us. And we don't have separate like pools of data that are jumping around. You know, what's interesting is that we cannot at, at my firm, we cannot use Microsoft Outlook on iOS, even though we'd like to, because the way they've they've implemented is they, they ingest a copy of your of your exchange data on their servers. And that's sort of not not the way that we do things here. Yeah, you know, that was a news item when it came out. And because, you know, it's Microsoft, nobody thought that 
you would ever think that the Microsoft software was not had a security. I don't want to call it um, failing, but just a security hole that that made it made it impossible for some companies to use. Yeah, I understand the value of their approach. No, I was just gonna, it's come up on the show before. You're not the first person who's had that issue. And I think it has to do with the fact that a lot of Microsoft Outlook on iOS uh, came from an app that uh, Microsoft bought. Was it was it Sunrise? Was that the name? It was another it was another calendaring app that um anyway, it was it was a it was a series of other apps that Microsoft bought and put together. And I, I don't know if it's um just kind of legacy of how they've handled it, but a lot of people are having that issue. Yeah, I think I think their philosophy, or at least the way they explained it way back, was that uh by having a copy on their servers, they can do smart things about surfacing data that might be useful to you. And Apple's philosophy has been to try and do more of that stuff on the device. In our case, We'd love to use it, but we just we just can't. Well, um, so so what are so what are people using for their calendar? Just the, the built-in calendar app? Yeah, just the built-in calendar app. And f- for those who are a little bit more savvy about their devices, they look for things like Fantastical, which you know doesn't bother bringing a copy of your data anywhere. I, I actually asked these guys on Twitter <laughs> years ago. I'm like, where do you guys put a copy of my calendar? They're like, what are you talking about? I said, well, do you guys like take it and save it anywhere? They're like, no, no, your data is your data. Yeah. And I said, really? And they said, yeah, it was great. Yeah. And that that's like, like I said, that's one of the things Apple did right is making it possible for calendar apps just to access that data. Same thing with the um, contacts apps. A lot of them do the same thing. Yeah. And I will say that um, I do collaborate. I have a small kind of side project that I'm working on with a couple of people. And we use something aside from OmniFocus, which is great for me keeping track of my stuff. But if I'm trying to collaborate with others that are also trying to do things, uh, we, we tried uh, this little side project. We tried Todoist, which worked okay. But for the way that we thought, it didn't quite fit with our with our mental model. So we shifted over to something called Flow that's over at uh, getflow.com. And that that's worked a lot better for us. It, it matches more closely to the GTD model uh, in my mind. Yeah. And that, you know, that's the one problem is if you've got a team and you want to have a collaboration with your task management, uh, you know, OmniFocus doesn't really do that. It's it's a it's a it's a it's an answer for a person, not for a team. The the way I've always done that is, you know, I just kind of track my own stuff and whatever the team is using, I'll go ahead and play along. But in terms of like my weekly review and everything else, everything gets done in OmniFocus. And I guess maybe one of the reasons why this isn't such a big problem with me is I don't work with that many teams. I don't have 20 meetings a week. Right. Yeah. And and um, I think uh, to answer a question that Katie asked earlier, what do I do to try and keep keep my system in check? And I'll tell you that I have uh, better days and, and worse worst days at doing this. But in general, I try to schedule time in my calendar so that other people don't schedule over it for me to process my inbox. So if I have a meeting that runs an hour, I try, I don't always succeed, but I try to schedule 30 minutes afterwards to allow me to process my notes. And we have a, a calendar meeting come very shortly, but another cool trick is to schedule prep time for, for meetings. You know, why not just put on your calendar, you're busy a half hour before so you can show up and be ready for for business. Now, do other people have access to your calendar where they can just, if, if you're free, all of a sudden you may see a, a meeting or something pop up on your calendar? Uh, yes. So in, in our environment, which is Exchange, uh, we have it set so that anyone in the company can look and see when someone else is available. It doesn't say what they're doing, but it does show if they're busy. So if I have a, a 12 o'clock to one o'clock lunch meeting and someone tries to schedule a meeting with me, they'll be able to see that I'm busy from 12 to one. They won't know what I'm doing, but they'll know that I'm busy. Uh, for the people who know to look 
it makes it really nice because then they don't schedule over things that are already there. For the people who don't know to look, uh, they sometimes schedule over you. But, um, you know, even on the iOS, it's a lot better now. You can see if you have a conflicting appointment right from within the mail message before you uh, before you accept. That sounds like a good topic for uh, one of your screen flows or training videos or something. Indeed. <laughs> also, might I suggest uh, using the reply all and BCC field appropriately? <laughs> I wish we could kill the reply all button. Yes. Yeah. Maybe maybe that's a feature in a future mail app. Just no reply all button. <laughs> Every law firm in the country would buy it. Um, the uh, with respect to setting meetings, though, and there's the other issues where you have seven people that want to meet. And I mean, do they just go into the Outlook system and, and pick a time that way? Or do you have a way to set like preferred times like some of these web services? Uh, so internally, uh, Exchange is kind of the the end all be all. So what will happen, and I apologize to those of you who don't use Outlook, but it's still kind of interesting. If I create an appointment in Outlook, there's a, a scheduling assistant button. And unfortunately, I don't think this is available on the Mac version of Outlook. I think it's only on Windows. I could be wrong. Um, but if I'm wrong, that's okay, because it, it happens about this time every week. Um, so if you click on that scheduling assistant, as you start throwing more and more people into the meeting, it shows you kind of a stack of everyone's availability. And there's even a button that says, show me the next available time. And if you have five people and they have a half hour that overlaps next week, Thursday, it'll recommend that as the as the time for you to meet. So if people stick within the exchange environment and they know about the scheduling assistant, they can uh, save themselves trouble when they uh, when they make their next meeting. Yeah, I'm, I'm using web services for that because usually the people I'm trying to schedule meetings with aren't in my network. You know, in fact, they never are. David, you're using Doodle still, right? Yeah, but there's a couple others. Next week, we're going to talk about that. Yes, I'm very excited about our upcoming calendar show, I must say. Um, okay. Uh, well, it sounds to me like you're a pretty productive guy. You've got to manage. Now, Now, where does GTD fail you in this whole system? Uh, where does it fail me? Well, I guess the trouble is, uh, and and the, the place where they have the, the biggest friction is when I don't have enough time to to create space. So, for example, uh, on a given day, I might receive 50 messages in a span of 20 or 30 minutes. So it's, in some days, I'll receive 300 emails. Some days I might receive 500 email messages. And I'm pretty aggressive about reading my mail and kind of deleting the things that I don't have any, you know, don't have to do anything about. But if I'm in meetings back to back to back all day and I'm completely slammed, uh, sort of having the mental wherewithal to go through and process those things like I'm supposed to, that that's where it fails me. But it's not that it's failing me. I think I'm not doing as good a job of creating boundaries around my time so that I can give the important work its proper place. And when that happens, I'm giving more attention to the things that are latest and loudest than to the things that really demand my attention. Yeah, so easy to, you know, the, the old saying, 10 gallons of water in a five-gallon bucket. It doesn't matter what system you use. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by 1Password. You know, there's a reason why everybody loves 1Password. It's won awards from Apple and has been picked by numerous tech blogs and magazines. A few weeks ago, they were even talking about it on the Today Show. And that's because 1Password is the solution for managing passwords on your mobile devices and computers. Password management is time-consuming and hard. We're signing up for more and more website services and apps these days that need a strong, unique password. And you can't use the same one everywhere because if the bad guys get it in one place, then they can hack your accounts everywhere. 1Password is the solution to that problem. 
OnePassword is an application that can install on your Mac or your iPhone or your iPad. They even have versions for Android and Windows. Using OnePassword, it can create strong, unique passwords that you can use at each one of these websites. And when I say strong and unique, I really mean it. There's a science to this, and OnePassword has a team of people that really know their stuff. All you have to remember is the one password to unlock the application. That's why it's called one password. It's a simple to use system that makes it ridiculously easy to set a strong and unique password for every one of your different logins. But one password does a lot more than that. In addition to tracking and creating passwords for you, it can also securely store information. For example, on my iPhone, I keep copies of my children's social security numbers and some of my medical information behind the 1Password vault. That way, if somebody gets my phone and unlocks it, they still aren't going to get my most secret information. Now, I said earlier that 1Password is also for Android and Windows, but I can tell you these guys really love the Mac, the iPad, and the iPhone, and they are always putting the latest and greatest features into the versions for the Apple hardware. For example, 1Password just kills it when it comes to unlocking your passwords on your iPhone. They use Touch ID, so you don't even have to type in your password. You can just use your thumb. They've also got a great watch app where you can put that information onto your wrist. I use that app almost daily. The thing is that 1Password just solves the problem for you. And because the developers are so on top of things, whenever there's going to be an update in the future, and you know Apple's going to have some sexy new feature at the end of the year, 1Password will support that too. They just work that way. So why don't you let 1Password take over your password problems? Head over to onepasswordcom MPU, and that needs to be in all caps, the MPU part. We talked to the gang at 1Password, and they're going to give Mac Power users listeners 20% off. So go to onepasswordcom MPU in all caps, get your 20% off today, and start protecting your internet security right now. So Ivan, one of the things you do quite a bit is um, I know that you've been speaking at conferences for the last 10 years or so. Uh, we'll be speaking – well, you'll be speaking with David, but I will also be speaking at the ABA Tech Show, though not with you. Um, and then you speak on a variety of, of tech-related topics. Um, tell us a little bit about your your speaking gigs. So this all started – thank you. This all started about uh, – about 10 years ago, 2007, I was invited to speak at a conference about Excel because whoever was planning to speak, I guess, was unable. I was a last minute substitute. That that sounds so fun. <laughs> it was great. Uh, and, and I love Excel. I use Excel almost every day, uh, even if I don't need to. And uh, I did uh, well enough that they invited me to back the next year to speak. I got three speaking invitations in 2008. And then the next week I got 12 speaking invitations. And so ever since then... I've been doing a little bit of speaking circuit, and that started me on my path to go, you know, if, if people are going to be inviting me to speak and they forget about where they heard from me, like I should have a web presence online so that they can find me. So I, I registered a website. I, I originally started it with WordPress. And after a couple of years of that, I moved it over to Squarespace where it's been, uh, it's been living happily since then. And I just put up, you know, I put up my speaking schedule. I get invitations periodically, anywhere between eight and 10 times a year mostly with uh, legal technology companies speaking on like Word, Excel, PowerPoint, mobile devices, um, Outlook. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. I get to meet a lot of really cool people that really know a lot about the software they use. And it teaches me, uh, I'd argue it teaches me more than I end up teaching them when I share information about how this technology stuff works. Yeah, and your website is hemmans.com, H-E-M-M-A-N-S.com. Um, so what, what are you using to 
pull off your presentations? So what's your software and uh, it's a mix. It depends on it, whether or not I'm collaborating with someone else. Most of the time I'm using Keynote because it does such a great job of allowing me to to intersperse short video tutorials that pause exactly at the second I want. So I can have a video play up to the exact half second. And then when I press a button, it goes to the next slide and it resumes without missing a beat. Uh, PowerPoint doesn't do that quite as well, but it's gotten a lot better in the last few years. So if I'm collaborating with someone else, we'll end up using PowerPoint as our presentation tools. And I fiddled with some of the other things like Prezi and so forth. But but if I get to choose, I, I usually pick Keynote. Okay, so just, I, just so I understand, when you're, you're saying you're playing videos in a Keynote file, are you saying that you pause the video within the individual slide or you're breaking the video up into like slides itself where the video stops at, you know, one point or one minute? Okay, so what, so what I'll do is I'll have, let's say that I have a video that runs 60 seconds and I want it to stop at 25 seconds. I'll go into my video editor. And at 25 seconds, I will export a copy, the first half of the video. So I'll make two files. One file will be the part one, and the other file will be part two. And if you play them back to back without without stopping, you can't tell that, that they're two videos. And I'll put one on slide one and the other one on slide two. And Keynote does a wonderful job of resuming video without any kind of stuttering at all. So from the user's perspective, the audience, they're looking at it. It looks like a continuous video that just happened to stop so that I can make a point before I resume. Yeah, so it looks like it's all on one slide, and they think somehow you're magically using your mind to stop the video when you want to talk. Exactly. Keynote also has the feature where, and with certain remotes, not all remotes support this, you can pause it manually um, with a pause button on the remote or on the keyboard of the the Mac. Um, But this is a a great way to do it where you don't want to have to worry about pausing at the right moment. You can manage this in advance and then, like, so long as you keep the video placement in the exact same location, that's the trick, right? So when you go to the next slide, the video has to be the exact same size in the exact same location. Um, any tricks for that? Uh, well, actually, I've I've been using ScreenFlow. Sometimes I use the uh, the uh, what what is it? The Final Cut. But uh, it's it's been pretty straightforward. I mean, ScreenFlow is rock solid. So I've been able to depend on it without uh, any any issues at all over the years. And and there's one thing I failed to mention about my presentations, and that's sometimes I don't use PowerPoint or Keynote at all. Uh, a fair number of the presentation uh, that I give, I give in the live application. So I'm doing a live demo. I'm either showing the Microsoft Excel application and I'm going taking questions from the audience and doing the gymnastics before their eyes or, uh, or Outlook or, or whatever else, or I'm showing my iPhone screen and taking them through the actual settings on the device rather than doing a prepared presentation. And, and the trick for that is knowing in advance if you're going to need the internet. Yes. And um, and making sure that it works, the internet works where you're going to speak, because that, that can be a problem. Indeed. Yeah, there was a time that I would bring a portable Wi-Fi a hotspot, uh, my own router, uh, a, a whole collection of dongles. Seems like we're, we're always talking about dongles nowadays, a whole collection of dongles and uh, a variety of devices. Today, I, I travel typically with a Windows laptop, a Mac laptop, uh, an iPad, an iPhone, a Wi-Fi hotspot, and uh, a few network uh, cables and about a, a Ziploc gallon-sized uh, collection of dongles. Do you ever give the presentations off the iPad or is it just off the PCs? Um, I, I give them off of the iPad or the iPhone. I treat each one of those as a backup for the other. So in the in the old days, I used to bring a DVD and a flash drive, and now I bring the iPhone and the iPad. So if the PC fails or if the Mac fails, I go to the PC. If that fails, I go to the iPad and so forth. 
We've talked extensively on Mac Power users about, you know, technology for giving presentations and tips for giving presentations. But one thing we really haven't talked about much is, you know, kind of getting yourself known as someone who is available for presentations and maybe wants to become more of a professional speaker and, you know, puts themselves out there. So if, if someone, you know, has a skill and has a particular area of expertise, you know, it looks like, you know, you're starting to promote yourself in, in this area and they're kind of developing this as a, as a side thing. What tips do you have for someone who is, is maybe looking to add this to their resume? Well, I, I suppose the first thing would be get lots of practice, <laughs> get lots of practice. I, I was a speaker sort of internally for years and years. I think I've done hundreds and hundreds of presentations internally, lots and lots of writing for 10 years. But aside from that, if you want to promote yourself, the, the step zero, in my opinion, is to get a website and start creating content. Uh, someone told me once to just start walking in the direction you want to go and the tools you need will find their way to you as you make your, as you make your journey. So I would say if, if you want to become a, a speaker to share information about an area of expertise, create a blog, start writing about that area of expertise, and you'll eventually develop a following uh, have discussions in places where people talk about the subject matter that you're expert in, whether that be on Twitter, Facebook, Google+, etc., and network with people. Uh, make friends with folks who are doing the sorts of things that you're interested in doing, and you'll find yourself moving in those circles over time. I mean, did you just let people know that you were interested in speaking? Or, I mean, is that a, a – how do you let people know that you're available? Uh, you know, I guess uh, that my HR manager back in the day volunteered me for that speaking opportunity. So it was a little bit of the right place at the right time. They knew that I had the reputation within the firm and they uh, they basically handed me over to the speaking circuit without my knowledge. I just was going to help them out as a favor. And that that sort of changed the trajectory of the kinds of presentations I did. So, Ivan, I want to talk a little bit. We were talking offline um, about your love of the uh, Harmony Logitech remotes. Uh, we talked about that as one of our, our gift guide picks um, a couple of, well, I guess, it's been a couple of months ago now. And uh, David had some issues with him, his, but yet we just had Mac Power users, listeners, uh, keep writing in and saying how much they, they loved theirs. Um, and you wanted to, to talk a little about yours. Yeah, you know, um, <laughs> I used to have the Sony Commander, which was like a gigantic uh, remote that could control up to 18 different devices way back in the day. And it came with a 200-page manual on how to use it. I love that thing. It was great, but it, it was a two-handed device about the size of an iPad mini uh, well before there was anything like an iPhone and uh, impossible to use in the dark. And then the Logitech came out with these Harmony remotes, and I bought one. I, I got the Harmony Remote 880. And it was it was great. <laughs> it allowed me to to uh, with a little bit of uh, configuring. I plugged it into my computer. I ran the Harmony software, and I built different uh, different profiles. So if I wanted to watch a DVD, I would do this, push this button. If I wanted to uh, watch Roku, I would push that button. Um, I ended up getting one for my dad, who's not the most technological uh, person in the world. However, uh, once I got him set up on the Harmony. He's able to switch between all of his devices, and he even knows how to navigate when things don't go well. So we got, uh, I think for him, we got him the Harmony 6, uh, I think it was like the 650 or the 600, and it had a small LCD display, and uh, we set it up so that he could push a button to watch his Dish Network. He could push another button to switch to DVD. 
He also had a DVD VHS player. And it was a complex setup. There's no way he would have been able to figure that out with the four or five remotes that were in his living room. But with a little bit of practice, he's able to uh, push the button. And when it doesn't work on his remote, it says, uh, help. He presses the help button. And then it says, is the TV on? And he can answer yes or no to the series of questions and eventually get the remote to figure out, oh, the DVD is not it's not on the right channel. Okay. And it fixes it for him. So he knows how to do that. And he can do it all day long like a champ. So in our scenario, in our situation, the, the Harmony remote was a great success. But uh, as David and I were talking about, the different television manufacturers, they have different codes for how the remotes work. In some cases, certain TVs, when you press power, it's just a toggle. It, you press it, it flips it to on, flips it to off. And other uh, television manufacturers have a dedicated code that when you press that button, it's always on. So if you have a TV that isn't uh, using the dedicated on command, you might find that the remote gets confused about what the TV is doing. So um, in some cases, you can aim your Harmony remote at your existing remote and teach the Harmony remote the exact command that it needs to manipulate the TV. But you got to be prepared to spend some time to get it set up. But, you know, I feel like such a dummy over this because I, w- I panned it. You know, we got one and I hooked it up and it worked OK, but it was inconsistent. And then I had this problem where I, I introduced it to my wife and both of my daughters and for each one of them, the demo did not work as advertised. You know, <laughs> it's a, oh, you push this button and it switches over to the Apple TV and then blah, blah, blah. And, and every time it just didn't work. And I could just see in their eyes that, you know, they gave me that cold, dead look like, oh, this is another bit of technology you're going to mess my life up with. And I just gave up. Well, but I would say that the Harmony remote should not cause dissonance in your family. Uh, my <laughs> dad, is, he's bound and determined to figure out any bit of technology. So he's he's got the attitude of like, you know, I'm going to figure this out, even if it kills me. Well, it's just and, but the funny thing is, so I told that story on the show. And I think every person that has written in has been and I love my Harmony remote story. I don't think anybody has written in that said they didn't like theirs. So I, I maybe I just didn't give it a good enough chance or it was just the, you know, the stars were not aligned for me when I was trying to demo it for the family. But uh, Katie, did you, you were talking that you were threatening to get one, Katie. Did you do that? I did not. I did not get one. Ah, so I was hoping you would have. All right. Well, it's interesting. I, I think that there's a lot of Mac Powers out there that love their Harmony remotes. And I guess I should try it again at some point. I don't know. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by Casper. Casper is a company that is focused on sleep. They have created one perfect mattress that they sell directly to consumers, eliminating the cost-driven inflated prices that you get when you go to normal mattress stores. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms, and they are passing that savings directly onto the consumer. It's award-winning mattress developed in-house and has a sleek design, and best of all, it is delivered in an impossibly small box. In addition to the mattress, Casper now offers an adaptive pillow and soft, breathable sheets, and I cannot wait to get to try these. I've been sleeping on a Casper mattress for several months now. I love it. In fact, several of my family members have now bought Casper mattresses, not just because they're comfortable, but because they are so convenient. So the... In-house team at Casper, their engineers spent thousands of hours developing the Casper mattress. And what a great job that has to be, being able to sleep on mattresses for a living. It's an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. It combines springy latex and supportive memory foam to create a mattress that's got just the right sink and just the right bounce. Plus, it's a breathable design that helps you regulate your temperature throughout the night. And best of all, Casper is not as expensive as you would think. 
Regular mattresses can cost well over $1,500. I know my last mattress that I bought maybe over 10 years ago cost significantly more than the Casper that replaced it. But Casper mattresses start at just $500 for a twin-size mattress, $600 for a twin XL, $750 for a full, $650 for a queen, and $950 for a king. And they are all made in America. Best of all, buying a Casper mattress is completely risk-free. They offer free delivery and free returns in the U.S. and Canada with a 100-night free trial. That's right. You get to sleep on it for 100 nights, and if you don't love it, they will pick it up from your house and refund you everything. Casper understands the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit, especially considering that you're going to spend probably a third of your life on it. And best of all, you can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash MPU and using the coupon code MPU. Terms and conditions do apply. Thank you so much to Casper for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. So Ivan, you're, you're running IT for many computers. You're training all these people how to use their devices. You're speaking at conferences. Give us a few of your favorite gem apps that, that help you get things done in your life. Okay. Well, uh, let's see. Gem apps. You know, I feel like I'm going to just be repeating a lot of the things that you guys say because you guys, uh, I've been following you guys, I think since episode, geez, it must've been like episode 56, but I went back to 23 with the Merlin man and listened to everything that you guys have done. So, um, I've learned a lot from Mac power users over the years, but I will tell you, there are a few things that I use kind of without fail, uh, regardless of where I go. So I, I'm a user of, uh, YNAB, you need a budget, YNAB.com. Lots of people tell us about that. Oh, yeah, it's it's great. For me, it's been transformative because it uh, it gives me greater insight on the kinds of things that are happening in my finances. And for the first time in my adult life, I've been able to uh, to save money, which before I was like, oh, I don't have to balance my checkbook. I just log into the bank and I see how much is there. But um, yeah, YNAB, it allows me to be more intentional about where my money goes and uh yeah, I, I've got nothing else to say. I would almost say they're an education company that happens to sell budgeting software. So even if you don't try their services at all, you can uh, learn a few things. And I would imagine many people are already doing the kinds of things that they teach you. But uh, like GTD, they give you a framework that you can follow. Now, YNAB is is web-based, correct? Uh, it's it's web-based now. I, I'm using the older version of it. The the They had a Mac app that was dedicated and a, an iOS app. So I'm on YNAB 4. I haven't made the leap forward to the latest version of YNAB because um, I, I deal with security stuff enough that uh, I know that you can link YNAB to your bank so that it can automatically import the latest statements. And I would want to do that, but because uh, two-factor authentication isn't a feature that they offer yet, I haven't jumped in wholeheartedly. Uh, if I were to move there, I, I just wouldn't do the part that links it up to my banking uh, statement yet without the two-factor. But all that being said... Uh, I, I really like what the company's doing and and how they're making it simple for people to uh, learn to save money. So that's one. Um, another gem that I use, and I've been using this a long, long time, is uh, TripIt, which allows you to take any travel itinerary, whether it's a car rental, hotel reservation, or flight information, forward it to a simple email address. And it shows up on your mobile device format in a way that's easy to read. Tripit.com, uh, it's available on iOS, and it's a web app if you're using it on a computer. I hardly ever use it on the computer. I almost always use it to just capture all of my itineraries. And there are a number of apps that do these sorts of things, but I go with the Tripit free version. And uh, 
A companion app to that from a different company is Flight Update. Flight Update Pro is $9.99 one time, and it basically brings you the TripIt Pro functionality uh, in a separate app. So it gives you sort of alerts for when flights change, gates change, uh, delays, and, and that sort of thing. So those two are kind of the one-two punch for when I travel around. And you use it for hotels and everything, right? I mean, not just flights. Yeah, car rentals, hotels, uh, airline information as well. Um, I use FreshBooks to keep track of my expenses when I when I go on my little speaking gigs. As many times, uh, the places that invite me to speak will pay for travel and any kind of incidental. So I uh, I take pictures of all of the receipts in the FreshBook app, and it uh, it makes it easy for me to not forget that I have some uh, money to recoup for any trip expenses. That's nice. It's catching at the time. You always get, get more of it back if you catch it at the time. Yes. This isn't an app, but this is uh, so two, two things on the native iPhone app that uh, one is, is a, is a prayer and a hope that, uh, that Tim Cook is listening. <laughs> There's one feature that would absolutely change my life in iOS mail. And that would be the ability to take a message and move it to a folder where you can search for the folder name. So right now I have to flick forever to to find the folder that I want. And if I could just have a little, you know, pull down just a little bit, like in the contacts app and just type the name of the folder, that would change my life because I have over 300 folders and it would, it would be a wonderful thing to be able to file messages away instead of waiting until I get back to my desk. Apple mail search just in general is, I think it's probably weakest link, you know, it searches yeah. slow. And, and if you've got a bunch of folders, it is difficult to, to get to drill down to where you want. Yes. But, uh, using 300 folders, isn't it? How do you get stuff into those folders? And you, you scroll and <laughs> so, stab. I mean, how do you do that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Stabbing is involved. Uh, when I'm, when I'm at my PC, the PC version of, um, of, uh, of Outlook, which I guess is similar to what mail act on allows you to do. You can press a keystroke and it brings up. So you select the message or a collection of messages. You go, okay, I want to move those messages to a folder. You press a keystroke and on windows, it's control shift and V like Victor. A dialog box appears, you type the name of the folder, you press enter. So it it makes it really fast. And I, I think you can do the same thing in Mail Act on on the Mac. I want to talk, we've talked a little bit about Mac gems or, or app gems. We do that all the time on the show. As someone who manages, you know, a large multi-thousand person organization from an IT standpoint, most of our listeners probably don't work or don't manage or, or won't be in an organization that large. But I, I know that many of our listeners are small business owners or managers in small businesses or work in IT for small businesses. Can you talk maybe about some of the gems that you use to help manage small offices or, or manage in the corporate and IT environment that maybe could could funnel down and also work in the small office environment as well. Like if someone's going to use, you know, I don't know, this type of service or this type of environment or, or maybe just big picture ideas, what what can the small business owner or the small office office manager or IT manager, um, some pearls of wisdom for them? So I would say uh, the first thing is if, if you're working in a small business environment and everyone's in the same location, you probably have a network where you're sharing files and folders already. And since we're talking Mac power users, you're probably working in a Mac environment already. Uh, I would invest, if you haven't already done so, in in some form of backup. Uh, and so if you're if you have an extra Mac, you can make that Mac a server for twenty dollars, and then that that's what I, I have a Mac uh, server at my house, and we use it for file sharing to a central server and for backups. So all of my Macs back up to the same 
six terabyte hard drive that sits over on the desk. So that that's really easy, uh, really easy to do. And it's a no brainer if you have everyone in the same location already. Uh, you guys have talked about other backups uh, scenarios or, or uh, solutions that are out there. I don't I don't need to explain those because I think those are, are just at this point, they just make sense. So if you're not backing up, that's that's the first thing I would do is back up. Uh, the next thing I would recommend is if you do have a small business, security uh, is is another concern. So what wherever you work online, if they offer a two factor authentication option, use the two factor authentication option. Uh, that that is also, in my opinion, like a no brainer. That's something that even even my mom or you know my cousins who don't deal with technology all day long that that's what I tell them to do. Because uh, if if you're using a password like pencil and someone figures out that you're using the password pencil or someone breaks into like your email service provider and they steal all of the passwords, even if they know your password, you're still OK, probably if you've got two factor authentication turned on, because without your trusted device, they can't get in, even if they know what the password is. Are we at the point where two factor authentication is just a gating issue? If it doesn't have it, you're just not interested. Uh, for me, yes. <laughs> Yeah, I think I am too. I mean, it's yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's for depending on the kind of business, it can be challenging for them, especially if they they develop their service. I'm thinking YNAP here. If they develop their service in such a way where they didn't plan for two factor authentication from the from the get go, they may have challenges kind of adding that on to their uh, to their existing model. But for any new companies that are starting today, uh, I think that if you're if you're planning to offer a service where there's any kind of web component where people can log in and they can set a username and a password, you should absolutely plan for two-factor authentication. If you're not, you're, uh, you're doing yourself a disservice. What are some of the other um, ideas for small IT and, and frankly, security? Because I think security is a big piece of this anymore. Yeah. So um, if, you're, if you're a small company, uh, at the very least, you should have a relationship with a technology person and or person's company that you can uh, trust. Uh, our, our motto is if, you know, if we're paying someone then we can afford to yell at them when things go wrong. Uh, I don't know if we have that written anywhere. I don't think it's in the policy manual, but that's sort of the idea. If you're, if you're paying for someone to provide you that kind of service, then the onus is a little bit more on them when it's time to make sure that your policies are right. The settings are configured. So have, have an IT resource that you can lean on to help guide you so that you're, that you're meeting all of the requirements that whatever your, your company or your clients re- you know, have for you. That would be uh, another recommendation. And then, of course, the online web presence. I feel like so many of these things that that I'm saying uh, I take for granted because they seem like that's exactly what you should have. If you have a business, you should have a website. Uh, if you have if you have a website, but you don't have a web developer, you don't need to spend thousands of dollars. I think I, I used to design websites back in 93 and 94, uh, back when HTML was like this mysterious language. No one knew how to to write and there were no CMSs. Uh, now it's there's no excuse for for having a web. You shouldn't have to spend ten or fifteen thousand dollars to uh, to set up a website. You can have a website for a hundred bucks a year or even less if you're uh, if you're not interested in paying. But if you have a business, you should have a website, and it doesn't. It, you don't have to have a designer or a design team to uh, to have a professional looking presence. Even if you're not using Squarespace and you're using Word, WordPress is a lot easier to use than it used to be. Uh, and in my opinion, if you know how to create an email message and add an attachment you know how to make a website. 
I uh, was meeting with an attorney. We we had lunch the other day, and I won't name names. I hope she doesn't listen. She's my age, and um, <laughs> and and uh, certainly some people are more tech savvy than than others. And we were just talking about business and marketing and and things like that. And um, she commented. She said, "Yeah, I I really like your your website. I think you did a good job with that." I said, "Oh, thanks. I I appreciate that. I I actually did that myself." And I was talking to her about her website. Just not as good, um, and I, I and she used one of these um, big um, legal providers who we won't name to do hers, and she said, "Yeah, I the, I need to do something about my my website. Um, yeah, I, I think it's a pretty good deal. I'm I'm paying twelve hundred dollars a month for it." I said, "Oh, all right, wow." And she said, "How much are you paying for yours?" And I said, "I don't remember. It's either like nine or twelve. She said hundred. I said no dollars. Yes. <laughs> wow. And um, I think I think I ended up paying for lunch after that. Yeah, it's crazy when you hear. I mean, we all bump into folks who have spent lots of money on very subpar, you know, web presence. Yeah, I, I just met an author. She she uh, she tours around the country. She's written this this book about Lauren um, Miller. It's like a, a a famous or actually not so famous historical African-American person in California. And her book is getting picked up in all of these universities all across the country. And she's traveling all over the place. And I said, oh, where's your website? She said, I don't have one. I said, well, what, what, where are you going to set one up? She's like, well, I don't have the eight or nine thousand dollars it's going to take to build one. I said, you can have a website for a hundred dollars. And so we sat down in about 90 minutes. We set her up with a website. So she's. She's online now with a web presence. Right. And and even if you can't do it yourself, you really can set up a website for a couple of hundred dollars. I mean, even if you, well, maybe a couple thousand, if you're, if you, um, if you're paying someone, um, some, there, there are plenty of WordPress designers who will give you a theme if you give them the content. I mean, that's something that can be done probably for under 3000 or $2,500. Yeah. I think there's just this, this. And for a lot of people who don't deal with the stuff, there's this acceptance that it costs a lot of money. I had a client want me to review a contract for her and it was like a $5,000 contract to add e-commerce to her website. And, you know, obviously I didn't end up reviewing the contracts. I gave her a few links and she ended up doing, you know, one of these third party providers. I don't know if I should say it's a sponsor. They rhyme with Mare Mace. <laughs> but they, uh, but she did it herself, like in an afternoon. I, I just think uh, there's a there's a perception there. Like you, you talked back in the ninety early nineties, you were doing it. You probably made good money doing it then because you were a wizard and nobody understood it. But, but there's still a a certain perception around people. I don't think so much along our listeners. I think most people figured it out. But for a lot of folks out there getting their businesses going uh, that don't know any better, they can sink a bunch of money to a website that's very subpar. Yeah. So I, I'll say one more thing for small businesses and. Again, I feel like this is sort of a no-brainer, but but maybe that's because I'm so used to thinking this way. Um, patches and updates. So if you're running a small business, uh, when uh, an Adobe Flash update comes out and it, you know, read the, the details, it says it's critical, go ahead and install it. If you have the backup that you did earlier and something goes wrong, you can restore from backup, but it's uh, it's safer to run those updates as soon as they come out. And that's really it, kind of to go full circle. That's why you want some sort of management software to manage your network. Yes. Like if, even if you just have five employees, especially if you give them iOS devices and you've got them on Macs or PCs or whatever, you want a way to do that without having to either pay a guy to come manually do it or, or spend your time manually doing it to all these devices with these managed services. And especially with the smaller companies, 
a lot of this stuff is super cheap, if not free. Um, you can automate and make this a lot easier. So Ivan, I have one final question for you before I let you go um, from this podcast. And you did not disclose this in the pre-interview. So I had to do a little investigation on the fly during the show here. But I um, have since learned that you are a magician. And had I known this an hour and a half ago, this entire podcast would have been very different. <laughs> so we're going to have to have you back on, I think, later to talk about that. But before we go, you've got to talk to us a little bit about being a magician. Okay, great. Thank you. I am uh, an amateur close-up magician that uh, specializes in coin magic. And uh, I, I belong to a club called the uh, the Academy of Magical Arts, which is uh, a club at the Magic Castle, which is in Hollywood, California. So if you've ever been to Hollywood and you've been to the Hollywood Bowl, you're just a few blocks away from the Magic Castle. It's a three-story mansion that's been around for more than 50 years. And I'll just add that it's a treat. If you're ever in L.A. and you can get yourself, you almost have to know somebody to get in. I think you do, actually. You do, But it, yeah. is, it is a treat to go. But now now we know somebody, David. <laughs> That's right. I proposed to my wife there um, 15, well, 17 years ago now. And for our 15-year anniversary, I I started practicing and I went and I auditioned to become a member and I made it in. So, yeah, I love going there. If If I can, I go there at least once a month, if not twice a month or more, but it's every week they have a different set of magicians. It's like, if you've ever seen like a, a Penn and Teller type magic show in um, in uh, Vegas, it's, it's every bit as good as that. And every week it's a different collection of guys. So there's always something new to see. And if you're a magician like I am, and you're a member, you get to go in and see all of the secrets. They have a magician library with uh, material in there as old as three or 400 years old, which is uh, really nice. I love and hate magic simultaneously um, <laughs> because I can't stand not being able to figure out exactly how you did what you did. So, um, yeah, so I, I, I enjoy the magic shows, but I spend the entire time like uh, angry, just sitting there angry. <laughs> and I just assume it's magic. And that explains the difference between us, Katie. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Ivan, it has been great having you on the show. Um, tell people um, uh, where they can find you, uh, the blog, the Twitter, and those types of things. So I'm at uh, hemmans.com, H-E-M-M-A-N-S.com. That's my website where I write periodically. And I'm also on Twitter at iHemmans. Perfect. And it's been, it's been great being here. Thank you guys for having me. Well, we appreciate you joining us. We look forward to seeing you uh, in Chicago uh, in just a couple of uh, not too far from now. And we hope, I'm not sure, are you signed up? We hope we'll see you um, and you'll have a chance to meet some of our listeners at our, our meetup. Uh, I'll be there. Absolutely. I'll be there. All right. We do want to thank our sponsors for this episode. That is our Smile, 1Password, Casper, Ministry of Supply. Don't forget to join the Facebook group. That is a great place uh, to send your comments, thoughts, and feedback on various episodes. And you can also email us the sh uh, at feedback at MacPowerUsers.com or follow up on Twitter. The show is at MacPowerUsers. I'm at Katie Floyd and David is at Max Sparky. We'll see you all next week.